property. It's amazing uh, what you do to host a conference, but uh, they're doing a great job, aren't they? And we're certainly uh, feeling right at home, and I hope that uh, uh, you enjoy yourself here and get to know these good people here at Bible Baptist Church. They certainly are wonderful folks, and we're thankful for what God is doing here and in all of your ministries. My, what a blessing to uh, hear where you're from and and, uh, know that God is blessing uh, His work in those places as well. And it's good to be together for a few days to let some iron sharpen iron a little bit. And uh, thankful for the New Testament Association and all that you're doing for the cause of Christ. Let's go in our Bibles tonight to Second Chronicles chapter 15, if you will. Second Chronicles chapter 15. We'll start with verse 1, read down to verse 7. We'll look at a few other verses here in just a moment in this chapter. 2 Chronicles and the 15th chapter, starting verse 1. And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while ye be with him. And if ye seek him, he will be found of you. But if ye forsake him, he will forsake you. Now for a long season Israel hath been without the true God, and without a teaching priest, and without law. But when they in their trouble did turn unto the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found of them. And in those times there was no peace to him that went out, nor to him that came in, But great vexations were upon all the inhabitants of the countries. Nation was destroyed of nation, and city of city, for God did vex them with all adversity. Be strong, therefore, let not your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. I do not believe it was God's intent that there be a 200-year gap between revivals. Don't you believe that God wants the church to be in a constant state of revival? Now, it's no surprise as we study the Old Testament to see God blessing and using the ministry of the prophet Samuel. During the reign of Samuel as prophet, the nation experienced wonderful blessings from God. And of course, why not when you think about Samuel's mom? How would you like to have a mom that prayed this way? There's none holy as the Lord, for there's none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more, so exceeding proudly, let not arrogancy go out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him are actions weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, they that are stumbled are girded with strength. They that were full have hired themselves for bread, and they that were hungry ceased. For the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. For the Lord killeth and maketh alive, he bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up again. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich, he bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar out of the dunghill to set them among princes that they may inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the worlds upon them. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them until they be destroyed. For by strength shall no man prevail. How would you like to have a mom that prayed like that? That was Hannah. 
And obviously God blessed Hannah with a son and she dedicated him to the Lord and Samuel serves his entire life for the Lord and God blesses in a wonderful way. But the people were not happy with just a prophet. They wanted a king. Samuel knew that was a mistake and certainly God knew it was a mistake, but he decided to give them what they wanted as God sometimes does. He doesn't always let us know what the consequences of what we want is. But he gives them a king and King Saul. And in the beginning, King Saul was a man that was humble and a man that served faithfully. But Saul got a little bit big for his britches, didn't he? And the kingdom, the nation begins to decline under Saul. David certainly had his moments of victories. David certainly had some times as a man after God's own heart where God blessed his reign as king. But David certainly had some some difficulties. Solomon was a wise man, but he didn't live very wisely. Solomon took 300 wives and 700 concubines, all of which took his heart away from God. And though Solomon built the temple and saw the glory of God come down at that moment, yet he begins to build all these temples for the idols of his wives. Then, of course, Rehoboam, Now the kingdom is divided. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 12 that under Rehoboam, they forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. By the time we get to Abijah, the Bible says that he walked in all the sins of his father. So six generations, about 200 years, until we come now to 2 Chronicles Chapter 15, the nation of America is a nation whose history is filled with revivals. 1739, the first great awakening took place in the colonial part of our nation. Those colonies were shaken back to God in an awakening that Jonathan Edwards described as a surprising work of God. George Whitfield and others came to preach and thousands would come and hear the word of God in the city of Philadelphia. 15,000 people came to hear George Whitfield in the open air when the population of Philadelphia was only 13,000. An amazing time. And most Incredible historians tell us that the United States of America would have, would have never declared their independence from England without that first great awakening. We would not have become a country without that spiritual awakening, that spiritual revival. And while that revival burned just five years or so, those who had lived during that time lived long enough to see a second great awakening take place around the year 1800. And now God began to shake the entire eastern uh, seaboard as the revival spread much further outside the colonies and affected greatly the universities like Yale and Harvard at that that time, where many were not even saved in those colleges and yet came to know Christ during that second great awakening. And while the second great awakening was no different than the first in what happened, it certainly lasted a lot longer, some say as much as 50 years. Then, of course, in 1857, the financial panic hit New York City. James Alexander had been preaching a series of Wednesday night messages on revival in his church. 
One of his deacons, Jeremiah Lanfear, never missed any of those Wednesday night services. But Pastor Alexander had some health problems, and his doctor advised him to go to England to get it taken care of. And while he was gone, the panic hit. Men who were rich woke up in the morning bankrupt. Jeremiah Lanfear, a layman, called a friend and said, let's get together and pray. And they went to the Dutch Reformed Church there in New York and in the library, pulled out a couple of chairs and knelt down and prayed during that noon lunch hour. By the end of the week, there were six, and by the next week, there were 20, and then 40. And pretty soon, all over New York, the sound of the noon bell meant a time to pray. As fire stations and police stations and libraries and every church was open for a time of prayer. And that prayer meeting revival or layman's revival spread not only all across America, but over to England as well. So that by the time it was over in 1858, over one million people had trusted Christ as Savior in prayer meetings. And while since that time there have been some seasons of God's blessing under the preaching of the like of Billy Sunday or D.L. Moody or Charles Finney or others that have gone to places and seen God move, it has been about 200 years now since we have seen a national spiritual awakening. And we might wonder, is something like that even possible? When we pray for our nation to be revived, when we pray for America to have revival, are we praying in vain? Are we hoping in vain? Are we perhaps laboring in vain? I want to look at this revival here in 2 Chronicles 15 that is kind of tucked away here in the Word of God. But I I see here three conditions present in this gap between revivals. We first notice the famine of revival. In verse number 3, the Bible says, Now, for a long season, Israel hath been without the true God, and without a teaching priest, and without law. A long season. How does a famine of 200 years of the absence of revival actually happen? Well, we see here a misplaced authority. In verse 3, a long season Israel had been without the true God. Now, it wasn't that they were without a God, but they were without the true God. Religion was still present. There was worship going on. There were still buildings where people came to worship or religiously serve, but they were without the true God. And may I say tonight in the United States of America, we have our gods. We have the God of possessions. We have the God of power. We have the God of the past. We have the God of pleasure. We have the God of performance. We have the God of preference. But the Bible says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Now, we know that. But what's our God tonight? Who do we serve tonight? I'm afraid we're in love with the wrong things oftentimes. What happens if the government of the United States comes to our churches and says, follow these laws 
or we're taking your buildings. They've already done it in Canada. And evangelical churches in Canada decided they wanted their buildings. And so they caved to the LGBT community. Friends, don't get in love with your buildings. Thank the Lord for tools. We've built $90 million worth of buildings in Lancaster since I've been there. Buildings are wonderful. But don't fall in love with them. I'm not sure churches are going to have buildings in 10 more years. By the way, the church is not a building. We can have church out there in that road they're building. They're putting a lot of money into it. Might as well use it. Where is our authority? Our authority is not the government. Our authority is not ourselves, for sure. The authority must be in the true God. But notice, not only a misplaced authority, but there was a missing ambassador. In verse 3, it says they were without the true God and without a teaching priest. Now, Israel had their priests. All of the rituals, all of the ceremonies were being conducted. But no one was teaching the law. No one was teaching the Word of God. Can I say kindly tonight, we are not going to keep our congregations through fellowship and activity. Now, I love fellowship. Well, I, I like fellowship. Love's a pretty strong word for me. I like fellowship. I like activity. I like to be a part of what's going on at a church, but that's not what is going to hold people together. I'm afraid we are losing people today in our churches to materialism and to worldliness and the false cults because the church is no longer the pillar and ground of the truth. We must have a teaching priest. Can I ask, why are we canceling services? Why are we minimizing the preaching time? Why are we playing games in junior church with our children? I don't know if you've noticed this, but the liberal left is real serious about teaching our kids. They're real serious. And they're real serious at ages two and three and four. But we're playing hangman during Sunday school. You know, I, I got saved at camp. My first year... At Camp Shatek, I was 10 years old, and, and we actually had a, a session in the mornings where they taught us Baptist distinctives. I was 10. We had to memorize the Baptist distinctives. The liberals are indoctrinating our young people. The social media influencers have the attention of our children. The sports stadiums are full. The music concerts are packed out. The movie theaters have a crowd. I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing, preach the Word. Be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And we've got to come back to having a teaching priest. Because without the true God and without a teaching priest, notice what happens, a mocked accountability. They were without a, without a teaching priest. They, they, they were without the true God. And verse 3 says they were without law. 
You see, the natural result of not preaching God's word is antinomianism. Look at verse 5. In those times, there was no peace to him that went out or to him that came in. But great vexations upon the inhabitants of the countries, nation destroyed of nations, city of city, for God did vex them with all adversity. Kind of sounds relevant, doesn't it? And pretty soon, without the true God and without a teaching priest, every man does that which is right in his own eyes. See, where did you learn that it was wrong to, to steal? You learned it in church. Where do you learn it's wrong to lie? You learn it at church. You learn it from the Bible. Where do you learn that it's wrong to commit adultery? It's in the Bible. Where, where do you learn that it's wrong to take God's name in vain? It's in the Bible. You see, and when we get away from the true God in a nation, when we get away from teaching the Word of God in our churches, pretty soon no one knows what's right or wrong. And we are in a mess in the United States of America because there's a famine of revival. Now, don't get this wrong. This is not to start the, 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 the conference on a negative note. I, I'm not a pessimist by nature, and I'm certainly not a pessimist when it comes to revival. I wouldn't be here if I was. These are great times for revival. It is in these times that God often brings revival. Nineveh was not a happy place. Nineveh was not a place where some evangelists were saying, can I go? In fact, they were buying tickets to go the other direction. Nineveh was part of the Assyrian Empire. It was a city known for its violence. It was known for its, its materialism. It was, it was known for people doing what was right in their own eyes. And yet Jonah, and by the way, I don't think Jonah ever was right with God. I, I don't know if Jonah ever got right with God. He certainly isn't right at the end of the chapter 4. But one sermon, and the whole city repented. All of it. Everybody. They even made their animals fast. I mean, when they repented with sackcloth and ashes and fasted before the Lord to show their seriousness, they told their animals, you're not eating today either. Imagine having a revival of your church going home and telling your dog, sorry, pal, we aren't eating today. One sermon. We're just one sermon away from revival in America. Elijah's day? Ahab and Jezebel? 1 Kings 21, 25, there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. God said there was nobody any more wicked than Ahab, and he's the king. And yet Elijah pulled down fire out of heaven, and all the nations said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. How about Pentecost? That wasn't a good day to preach on, on, on the gospel. They had just crucified Christ. In fact, in Acts 2 and verse 23, as Peter's preaching to that crowd on the day of Pentecost, he looks at him and he said, You have taken and with wicked hands have crucified and slain the Son of God. He was preaching to the very crowd that a few days before said, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And yet 3,000 people get saved. Baptized, added to the church. Paul's day was not an easy day for revival or church planting. Nero was not exactly a politician that was in Paul's court. Nero hated Christians. He would gather them up and take them out in his backyard at night and douse them with oil and set them on fire so he could see his flowers. Nero married a 13-year-old boy in public. 
not, we're not treading new territory here, folks. We're in the same territory that sin always takes a nation. And yet it's in these moments that God wants to awaken his people. God wants to show himself strong on our behalf. And so there's this famine of revival. But notice, secondly, the forerunner of revival. Verse 1, And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. Notice that, the Spirit of the Lord. Revival doesn't come from man. We, we're, we're going to have a great time here in these couple days, and we're going to be refreshed, and we're going to uh, get some sharpening with one another, and, and uh, we're, we're going to hopefully go back home and, and be excited about the work that God has given us to do. But we're not going to carry a revival back with us. Revival doesn't come from man. We cannot manipulate or manufacture revival. Now, that does not mean that God does not use men, but it's the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, their spirit and their life, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. We must get back to hearing from God as leaders. We must get back to walking with God. Our people in our churches need a word from God. And so here is an inspiration from above. But notice the investment in Asa. The word of the Lord comes to Azariah, and in verse 2, he went out to meet Asa. This revival does not come through Azariah. It comes through Asa. Are you okay if revival doesn't include you? That's a really important question. Do, do, do we have to be the preacher when there's revival? Does, does it have to be in our church? Does it have to be in our country? Are we okay if revival comes through someone else? Are we willing to invest in the Asas? Several years ago, we did a drama there at West Coast. We do several a year, and I have the privilege of writing them and directing them, and I wanted to do a, a drama that included the story of the pilgrims. And I was doing some research, and you know how that goes. It kind of leads you from one place to another, and I ended up talking to this lady over in Holland who was quite an expert on the pilgrims and their voyage and their, their ministry, and I was kind of interviewing kind of with her and asking a lot of questions, and she made a statement that literally just kind of shocked my whole being. She said, you know, the pilgrims had a 500-year plan. And I said, what did you say? She said they had a 500-year plan. Now, at the college, we have a five-year strategic plan. Every year we have to kind of update it because every year, you know, a year goes off and so you got to add another year. And it's, it's a way to kind of stay ahead of the game. And as far as, you know, buildings and staff and, and resources and trends and, you know, you do all these analysis, SWOT analysis and different things. And I happen to have to be in charge of the strategic plan. I have no idea what I'm doing. I, all I know is the Lord's coming back. But it's a pain to just keep up with the five-year plan. And when she said they had a 500-year plan, I said, tell me about this. She said, well, 
most of them knew when they left England, they were not going to make it to America. In fact, there were originally two ships that they had ordered to take them to America, but one of them at the last minute was not seaworthy. And so John Robinson, the pastor of the church of these people, he decided he would stay. He didn't go. He said, I'll stay with those who stay behind and we'll, we'll keep fighting the persecution here and, and keep, keep studying and keep serving God here. And the women, many of them, said to their husbands, take our sons and go. I and the daughters will remain. And the reason they did that was because they believed the sons would have a better chance of survival and perhaps establish religious liberty in America. And their 500-year plan was this. They believed that if they died in the process of getting to America and establishing religious liberty, if they died, at least their death would be a stepping stone for the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. Can I tell you, we are still living in that 500-year plan. And yet today, I think our selfish way of thinking is we want God to work through me and here, and, and that's it. Here's Azariah now investing in Asa. Who are you investing in? Who are you passing the baton to? I hope at least your children. I hope at least your grandchildren. I hope people in the church, the young people coming up, understand that you believe in revival. And like T Timothy, who was told by Paul, thou hast fully known my doctrine. Oh, Paul was made sure that Timothy knew the book. But he said, you've also known my, 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 my purpose, my manner of life, my faith, my persecutions. Paul had taught Timothy everything. So why? So that when Paul went off the scene, Timothy could continue on. We see an instilling of action in verse number two. He says... Uh, to Asa, hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while ye be with him. And if ye seek him, he will be found of you. But if ye forsake him, he will forsake you. Down in verse 7, he tells him, be strong, therefore, and let not your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. Listen, despite the present generation that we see around us, despite the circumstances that look a little bit bleak for us who believe God's word tonight, we've got to quit this business of fatalism, saying it can't happen. Well, no one comes Sunday night anymore, so we canceled the service. No one comes forward anymore, so we don't give invitations. No one's gotten saved out soul winning, so we're just going to cancel that command. We don't have any children or teenagers, so no reason to have a program. Giving is down, so let's cancel the missionaries. We need the Spirit of God to move us this week. We have enough funeral directors of revivals. We need some forerunners of revival. We need some leaders to pass the torch to the next generation. Well, what's the formula for revival? We see the famine. We see the forerunner in Azariah. But what's the formula? 
As I said, we cannot produce revival. There's not some magical wand that we can wave and suddenly revival appears, but we can provide the soil in which the seeds of revival from God can fall. As some would say, we cannot control the wind as the Holy Spirit is likened to the wind there in John chapter 3. We know not from whence it came or whither it goeth. We see the effects of it, but we can't see the wind. And so the Spirit of God is like the wind. It blows where it listeth, but we can set our sails to catch that wind of the Holy Spirit of God. Where does it start? It starts with a boldness. A boldness. Look at verse 8. And when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Oded the prophet, he took courage and put away the abominable idols out of all the land of Judah and Benjamin and out of the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim. And he renewed the altar of the Lord that was before the porch of the Lord. He took courage. He, he acted in boldness. He began to tear down the idols. In fact, look at verse 16. And also concerning Maacah, the mother of Asa, the king, he removed her from being queen because she made an idol in a grove. And Asa cut down her idol and stamped it and burnt it at the brook Kidron. He deals with his own mom. This took a little courage. This took a little boldness. He was more concerned about honoring and pleasing God than even his own family. And we must have courage in these days. We must stand and having done all to stand. And by the way, God's not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. And incidentally, courage is not going to drive people away from your church. We think today, well, if we have, t- if we get, if we get into some idols now, we start stamping down idols. We start calling sin sin, and we start, you know, uh, lifting up the standards too high. Uh, everybody's going to leave. Look at verse nine. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh and out of Simeon, and they fell to him out of Israel in abundance when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. Listen, boldness, courage in these days will not drive people away. It will draw people to you. Some of you have seen that during the pandemic when churches were closing their doors and you kept yours open. You've got people in your church now because of that. Because you had courage. You had some boldness. You said, we've got to keep preaching. We've got to keep ministering. We've got to keep the doors open somehow. And God draws people through courage. He draws people through boldness. There was a boldness, but notice there was a brokenness in verse 11. They offered unto the Lord the same time of the spoil which they had brought, 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep. This was no small sacrifice. I'm sure glad we're not in Old Testament times, aren't you? I tell you, you talk about the road being torn up. Imagine bringing all these animals to the temple to offer to the Lord and just the the rigor of that and the work of that and, and the sacrifice of that. And here was a brokenness, but God always honors that brokenness. We throw stuff away that's broke, but God says the sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken and a, a broken and a contrite spirit thou wilt not despise. The Lord is nigh to them that be of a broken heart, and save as such as be of a contrite spirit. 
Don't overlook the, the first part of 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. It must start there. There's a boldness, there's a brokenness, but then we see a baptism. And I, I'm speaking to Baptists tonight. I listen very carefully to the introductions, and I think everybody in here knows what baptism is. What we don't need is a sprinkling. We don't need a sprinkling of revival. We don't, we don't need a, a, a touch of water of revival. We, we don't need even a pouring of revival. We need an immersion. We see an immersion here. Look at verse 12. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart, with all their soul. This wasn't just a little, little dabble, do you? This wasn't just a little Sunday morning exercise. They, they were all in. To revival, all in to a commitment. In fact, look at verse 13, that whosoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. And they swear unto the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with cornets. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with their whole desire. And he was found of them, and the Lord gave them rest round about. They, they were instituting the death penalty for somebody that wasn't committed. Imagine if you went home and told your congregation, if you don't come next Sunday, we're putting you to death. I mean, these people were serious. This was a baptism of commitment to God. And in verse 19, we read that for 35 years, they enjoyed the blessing of God. The words here in our text remind me of what God says in Jeremiah 29 and verse 13. Ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all of your heart and all of your soul. Now, I know that to some may sound really demanding of God. Like everything? I don't, I don't get to enjoy me at all. <laughs> I, 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 I don't get to just look at the world a little bit. It sounds really demanding, but I want to remind us that that promise there in chapter 29 and 13 of Jeremiah is preceded in verse 11 by, by God saying, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to bring it to an expected end. You see, while, while sometimes God's requirements for His blessing seem harsh, they seem so contradictory to our flesh, and they, they seem so out of sorts with our culture, yet God says, hey, if you'll seek me, I promise you, you'll find me, if you'll do it with all your heart, all your soul. And remember, I'm not going to do something bad to you. I'm going to do something great for you because I want you to arrive at my expected end. Oh, and by the way, Jeremiah 29, 11, and 13 were given to the nation of Israel while they were in the Babylonian captivity. That makes it even more astounding, doesn't it? I mean, these people have been ripped away from their homeland. Their city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. Many of their friends killed. Their young people taken as slaves. But you know what God told them when they got to Babylon? He said, build a house, plant a garden, get married, 
have some kids, let your kids get married. You read it. He said, when you, when you, when you get there, build a house, plant a garden, get married, have some kids, let your kids get married. Because he said, I'm bringing you out. And he did. You see, God always sees the big picture. The devil has convinced us revival's impossible because we see the conditions around us instead of looking at the catalyst within us. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in this world. But as long as we're bowing down, as long as we're consumed with our retirement or our bank account or what we're going to eat or where we're going on vacation or our sports teams or sleep, we're not going to see revival. But I love them that love me and they that seek me early shall find me. That's a promise. It's a promise of revival. It's been way too long in America since we've had one. But here's the question tonight. How long has it been since you've had one? When's the last time you and I had revival? There may be some things tonight that God has to do in our nation for us to see a, an awakening like the first or second or the prayer meeting revival. But there's really nothing that needs to happen other than for our will to be broken for us as individuals to have revival tonight. So how long has it been for us? Let's pray. Our Father, I know that we gather in this meeting because we're concerned about a lot of things in our country. It's why we're in the ministry. It's, it's why, we're, why we're a pastor, why we're a chaplain, why we're an assistant pastor, why we're a missionary. It's, 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 that's the reason. We see what's happening. And we, we know we have the answer. We have the gospel. We have the gospel that changes lives. And you've commanded us to, to plant churches. And you've told us the gates of hell will not prevail against them. We have those promises and we have that power that you've given. We understand why we're here. Lord, help us to look first at ourselves. Lord, ask ourselves, what keeps me from revival? When's the last time that I truly and completely was given to the Lord without any reservation, no matter what the cost? Lord, may you find us in that place tonight. His heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I'll ask our pianist to begin to play a song of her choice.